There's a story that a marriage therapist shares in one of his books that I often share with folks in the midst of premarital counseling when trying to spin out the importance of love and respect in a relationship. And the story goes something like this. The marriage counselor is sitting in his chair, this troubled marriage, because these are the only kind of marriages that come to marriage counselors, sitting across the way from him. And the counselor puts a question to each, the man and the woman, and says to the woman, does your husband love you? Well, this is not a difficult question to answer. This is an easy question to answer, but a troubling one to answer. And the woman, without hesitation, says, I don't know. I don't think so. I wish he did. I wish I could tell. I can't tell if he loves me. And some of you wives here may resonate quite acutely with that sort of description. The man is similarly put the same question. Man, says counselor with deep voice, does your wife love you? The man also, without hesitation, without forethought, answers confidently. Well, yeah, sure. He's unworried. He's not thought about it. Well, the counselor, as good counselors do, asks a follow-up question. Man, says the third counselor, you say your wife loves you, but... He reconsiders and says, oh, oh, like me? Well, no, she hates my guts. She can't stand me. And then the counselor knows he's got something to work with. It strikes me, as we come to Deuteronomy 8 today, that that kind of dynamic that goes on in a husband and wife relationship, where one may be unconvinced of the love of another and the other may be unconvinced of the possibility of pleasing the other, that we bring the same sort of capacity, intention, relation to God. You know, the same us that deals with spouses and other people is the us that deals with God. And so it's very easy for us to wonder, like some spouse might, does he love me? I don't know. I can't tell. I wish I could know for sure. Or... Does he love me? Sure. But like a celestial wife, he just can't really tolerate me very well. He, he thinks I'm a smelly, disappointed, half-witted me. And in either case, it's a horrible way to live. And I think that Deuteronomy 8 gives us a way to reckon with this kind of notion because one of the hardest things on the planet earth for people of faith is to believe what the Bible says all over the place and what nearly everyone in here, at least 92.5% of you in here, believe that God loves you. But see, the problem is that in your internal dialogue, in the things that you say to yourself, and see, Moses helps us here realize even several thousand years ago, people like us, they say things to themselves. It doesn't mean you're crazy. It means you're alive. You have an internal dialogue. You the things you say to yourself, the, the ways that you interact with yourself affect how what you believe and what you do, how you perceive the world. And so he says to the Israelites, 
you may say to yourself, verse 17, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. He's recognizing that you'll be in a certain condition of life where you're going to say certain kinds of things to yourself. What occurs to me that we say all kinds of things to ourselves, and if, if a fundamental undergirding message that becomes the interpretive grid for how we live is something like, I don't know if God can be pleased. Or, I think God might be mean. Then, you can't do any of the stuff that the Bible says except for the rebellion parts. You can do stiff-necked if you think He's mean or unpleasable. You can do rebellion. You can do self-righteousness. You can act really good to keep Him off your back like you're kind of paying a pittance to keep Him away, give Him a tip so He won't bother you like the IRS. But if you don't think God is pleasable, like if you can't envision God ever smiling, or looking at you with anything other than just kind of a, oh gosh, it's you again? If you can't think of Him in any other way than that, it's nearly impossible for you to hear any of the words of the Scripture that urge you to live, not to please yourself, but Him. To observe all the commands to be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so you may live and increase and enter and possess the land, to observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in His ways and revering Him. All of these things seem utterly impossible if you don't think God can be pleased. Or if you think that underneath His commands are some kind of meanness, some kind of trickery, that God's one of those vendors with a little ball in the nut and he's switching them around and every time you pick one it's the other, sorry. But the scripture is pretty emphatic that God can be pleased. That he is not mean. And so I want to look at some of the ways that we can see this today so that we can begin to appropriate, so that we can begin to take Moses' words and the rest of the scriptures into ourselves and say, oh, this is a way of orienting my life. This is a way that I can actually function on the planet Earth without being stiff-necked, without being rebellious, without being self-righteous, but actually feeling joy? Actually with some amount of lightness? Actually with some moments of reprieve? Actually thinking... I'd like to do what God wants. I want to please Him. And not feeling like that's a fool's errand. So what about this helps us to see that God can be pleased? Well, the first thing is this. The specific commands that Moses is giving to the people of Israel on the verge of going into the promised land. They're about, you realize, they're about to move out of a life of deprivation, out of a life of being on food stamps and welfare, and they're about to move into a nice wooded lot with lots of acreage, and they're going to have a lake house too! They're going to be able to shop at Green Life. They're not going to be worried about gas prices. They'll have enough! But as they stand on the verge of entering into that kind of life, coming out of a kind of life where it was apparent to them sometimes or easy for them to imagine sometimes that God was after them, that He didn't like them, that He hated them, that He wasn't trustworthy. Moses says, follow every command. He gives them a whole book of commands, a whole book of instruction. 
the Big Ten that we know about so well, and we looked at a couple of weeks ago, these are specific commands. These are specific instructions. And let me suggest to you that the specific commands of God for your life mean the possibility of God's pleasure. Huh? The specific commands of God mean the possibility of His pleasure. This is an indication that God believes that you can be pleased, that He can be pleased. Because He gives you the ways to do it. There is not a husband or wife in here or a student who has played for a coach or a teacher who hasn't at some point or another felt the exasperatedness of working and trying and trying to intuit and divine what am I supposed to do? How can I please this man? How can I please this woman? One boy said, I think I've learned that the coaches aren't mad at me if that I did well if no one screams at me. Some of you have experienced that. You know what? Have you ever thought to yourself or even said aloud, Honey, I've never said this. Y'all might have said this. I've read these things in books. What do you want me to do? Just tell me what you want me to do. Well, God tells us what He wants us to do. And He does that because He doesn't want the idea of loving Him, the idea of responding to all of His graciousness in our lives, to be something that's abstract and undoable and immaterial so that you have this perennial sense that no matter what you do, it's not quite good enough. No matter what you do, it's the wrong thing. So He gives specific commands. And in doing so, He... He gives us a way, a pathway to experiencing His pleasure, a pathway to knowing what's important to Him and what He wants us to do. Mike Mason, in an important book about marriage, says this, The problem most couples experience in marriage is that marriage itself is not abstract enough. What he means by that is, you know, people in our culture love the idea of love, but they're incapable of loving actual people. That love always gets boiled down into very specific commands. It may not feel like that to you, but that's what happens. Anytime you actually love somebody in your 9 to 5 way, in your walking around shoes, is it always gets very concrete, very specific. He says, just like the demands of the Christian faith are altogether too specific. They're too moral for when Christ enters a person's life, and you've experienced this, it's always on the level of morality and everyday morality at that. It's not primarily religious transports and ecstasies that he deals in. And this might disappoint some of you. Some of you may have had some amazing religious experience to get into the faith. You may have had some religious experience along the way. But most of you who have been at this a while realize that the primary way that you do your Christian life is not phenomenal religious experiences. It's just everyday humdrumness. But Christ will place His finger on this or that particular mess in our lives. On this insult that you just gave to your friend. On this little white lie. Or this little piece of gossip that you disguised as a prayer request. And so it is in marriage that where the pressure is felt most is in a whole series of tiny, sharply defined issues of morality. Issues which have the tendency to take the shape of commandments. And they go like this. Do not squeeze the toothpaste from the top. 
which you've read the thing, it says squeeze from the bottom and flatten as you go up. You love your spouse, you won't go from the top if it drives them crazy. Honor the day of your anniversary. Now, this is a minor thing, but forget your anniversary and see if it's a minor thing. I have never done that. Hopefully you have never done that, and hopefully my saying this today will make sure that you never do that. But that's because honoring the anniversary is a specific way of showing concrete and demonstrable love to someone. Remember to take out the garbage. Do not use your power saw when your wife is at home because she can't stand the noise of it. And so on and so on. It's a whole bunch of really little things that can ruin a marriage because that is what our wills tend to be made of. A bunch of petty, selfish desires. But you see, because love is always concrete and it always does boil down into specific actions, God can say in a very broad way, in a bannery kind of way, in the kind of thing you would hang on a wall, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your mind and all your strength and all your soul. And the addition from elsewhere in the Scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself. These are a summary. But when you start to walk out of here on a Sunday morning and you go to lunch, you've got to figure out what does loving God and loving neighbor mean in a very specific way. And God, who can be pleased... God, who has rescued the Israelites from their Egyptian captivity when they were nobody, when they were an unimpressive nation, with no technological advance, with no brawn, with no sexiness to attract them, said, I set my affection on you. I wanted you so that you would be mine. I've liberated you from your poverty. I've liberated you from oppression. And I'm yours. You're my treasured possession. The same way he said to us, see, all I'm saying here is valid for people who know that Christ has already taken away the sting of the law's judgment. People who really realize that, at least in theory, realize that God, God looks at us and He says, I want you, not based on anything you've done. You can't do enough to make me want you. I just want you because I love to love. And so He claims you and He wants you and now He says, here's a way to relate to me. Here's a way to love me back. It's very specific. There are specific things you can do what are they? To believe that God can be pleased. What are some of the specific things you can do? Well, one of the ways he says, in verse 10, he says, when you have eaten, he's telling these Israelites, and you go into your new setting, when you have eaten, all that grass-fed beef hasn't been poisoned with any antibiotics. On your big, you've got, you've got six big green eggs. When you've eaten and are satisfied... When you're leaning back with a ice cold Coca-Cola and you are unbuttoning your top button because you're so stuffed. That's a thing, right? He says, praise the Lord for the God. Praise the Lord your God for the good land that He has given you. Be careful not to forget Him. Do you know that one of the ways that you can praise God, that one of the ways you can please God is by remembering Him to praise Him when you meet up with pleasure. 
The psalmist says this, I will praise, Psalm 69, 30, I will praise God's name and song and glorify Him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and its hooves. Do you believe something as pedantic as that? Have you ever thought of this? At the end of a meal, you're tired, but you're satisfied. Your wife cooks some good lasagna or maybe you're fancier and have some sort of quiche. You do that sort of thing. And you eat it and you're satisfied and you had a good piece of cake and you're sitting back. Do you say, whoa! Before we have a moment more of living, we need to stop and say, glory to God for this chocolate pie. Preach. I'm being a little silly, but do you ever think whenever you run up to something that's pleasurable, to stop and say, God gave me this pleasure. When you've just enjoyed laughter as a family instead of people wanting to bludgeon one another, stop! Praise God! It's a miracle! Have you ever faced a difficult week and you See, we're good, man. We're, we're good at claiming things, begging God for things. Lord, please. I got this test tomorrow. I don't know nothing. Don't let me fail it. Don't let me fail it. Help me to remember things. Help me to. And then you don't fail it. Well, thank Him. Remember Him. Remember that God listened to something as silly as a prayer that you wouldn't fail a test because it's not silly. It's part of your life and He's involved in your life. See, that's what God wants the Israelites to know. I'm involved in all of your life and your tendency is going to be to think in the absence of any kind of deprivation, the absence of hardship, in the presence of all this fatness, you're going to forget me. Fatness will make you forget. Fullness will make you forget. So praise me. You have so many opportunities to offer praise and gratitude to God. And then... Do you ever do this when you pray? Imagine. I can't remember if I said this earlier today or if I said it at Lulu Lake, but faith is about being sure of things that you can't see. Imagination. You know what imagination is? Imagination is when in your mind you can see things that aren't actually there. You can envision things. That's why Barney always confused me because Barney was an imaginary purple dinosaur, but he wasn't imaginary because he was right there. You could see him. That's not imaginary. That doesn't develop the imagination. That's the opposite of developing that imagination. You develop the imagination by imagining things that aren't there. Do you ever imagine when you pray? Do you ever imagine as you're praying, as you're praising, that God actually thinks of this praise, as this, this prayer of thanksgiving as, as incense, that He goes... Just like you might do if you smelled some beef on the grill. Well, there's a lot of food references here today. But I'm not hungry, I assure you. But don't get too close, I might eat you. But do you ever imagine that God is going to your prayers of praise because you've stopped and you've acknowledged Him on a planet where most of the people are not acknowledging Him? Most of the people are stealing His stuff. Most of the people are, are taking the pleasures that He hands over to Him and they're forgetting Him entirely. They're using Him. But the community that has been rescued to declare His praise when we pause and we praise Him, when we're satisfied and we thank Him. Do you imagine that He's pleased with that? The Bible says you should. 
because he is pleased with it. So another specific way you can do that is when he says, be careful to follow every command. Think about some of the commands. Think about this. Kids, are there any kids in here? Yes, there are. I see you. Are you a kid? Anyone a kid? Okay, thank you. And even if you aren't a kid, you are around kids. You have, as a parent, a responsibility to teach these kids how to envision God, what's important to God. Grandparents, you're around kids. Your sole job is not just to spoil them. Part of that's good. Show them a lot of grace. But one of the things that you can teach your children is that you, children, can actually please the God of the universe who by the word of His power sustains all things at all times perfectly and then in the right order, you can please Him when your mom says, Little Jimmy, please do not put your shoes on the table because that's where the food goes and instead put them in the cubby hole where they go. Do you realize you can please God? When you, little kid, child, take your shoes and you put them up because your mom and dad ask you because God says, honor your mother and your father. And the Apostle Paul in Colossians says this, children, he says this, kids, listen up. Honor your parents because this pleases the Lord. It actually makes Jesus happy when your mom and dad say, wash your hands, it's time for supper. And when you don't, ignore them. I know no one in here has ever ignored their parents. But when you go wash your hands, you can please Jesus by washing your hands? Doesn't that seem amazing? That's what Paul says. See, because God is shown love by us, whether we're little or big, when we take the things that He says are important and they become important to us. And that's always boiled down to specific little day-in and day-out types of things that we can do. When you see something, God says, don't steal. When you see something, kids, you see something that looks good. It's in your sister's room. It belongs to your sister. But your sister, well, she's not there. And you don't take that thing that you must have. God likes that. He likes it when you don't do something too. When you don't steal. Or grown-ups, you know, when you are doing your taxes. Simple things like this and you think, I would like to keep this money. I don't want to support no Obamacare. I want to keep this for myself. And you fudge a little bit. You hide a little bit here and there. God is not pleased with that. He is pleased when you're honest, specific, demonstrable, concrete. The specific commands, be careful to follow every command because these are the kinds of things that God likes because God likes things. He also likes it when we're not misled by our trouble. He can be pleased when we're not misled by our trouble. How do I see that? Well, listen to what God says to the Israelites. Through Moses. Hey, remember, remember how all the way in the desert God led you. And He did this to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep His commands. He humbled you, He caused you to hunger, and then He fed you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known. 
to teach you that man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out from the mouth of God. You had this uh, sensational experience with tailoring. You had clothes that wouldn't wear out. You had this phenomenal sort of feat of podiatry. Your feet didn't swell. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Okay, here's a way that you can please God. Specific way. When trouble comes. When you are in the wasteland. The vast and dreadful desert. When things seem dry. Dark. When you bump up against the kind of things that not a person in here is not bumping up against in some way or another. Your relationship with your spouse is not going at all like what you envision. You feel like you got gypped when you married that gal or that dude. You're you're struggling over what to do with your kids or they're teenagers. They're, they're like half-bred humans. You don't know what to do with them. And you are thinking, God, why do you hate me? Why won't you answer my prayer? Why won't you save little Jimmy? And it doesn't seem like anything's happening. You don't know if you're going to be able to pay your bills. You don't know if you're going to be able to make payroll for your business. You've got, you've got these dark desperate inner struggles that you know about you fear God knows about and nobody else knows about and they're eating your lunch and you think ah, why can't I struggle with something else why do I have to have these sexual struggles why couldn't I struggle with eating like Pastor Eric I can handle that I can stay away from food it's just the beer that gives me trouble All of you have something or another in your life that you think this thing, this deprivation, this struggle, this way that your body's not working right or your mind's not working right or your job's not working right, you're dissatisfied. There's some way or another, every single person in here has something where you're thinking, if God loved me, this wouldn't be here. And in that way, we're all kind of like little kids. Little kids who, in the moment of doing what you've just asked them not to do, please do not touch that outlet. Touching as close as they can all around it. And you might give them a spanking. You might give them a verbal warning. You might give them a time out. Whatever you do. And your child, the smaller they are, the less likely they'll do this, but as children get old and they get some kind of consequence, they get some kind of discipline, what will they say? You're mean! Or, they're younger, you're a meanie pants! You're a bobo tree head! I've been called that before. No, no, I haven't. When Kathy and I were young, we were babysitting a group of some kids, and I think the boy called the girl a bobo tree head. That was the worst offense I'd ever heard. But you know what happens is when you feel deprived in some way, you have this expectation. If God really loved me, He'd do certain things. And we get like children. See, because the problem with children, for all the ways that are admirable about them, all the ways that are extolled about them in the Scriptures, you must become like little children. They're present. They say what they mean. They trust. They're, they're dependent. They don't, they're, they're not proud. But the one thing they don't have is any freaking perspective. They can't think more than about three seconds ahead. So when you 
discipline them, the younger they are, all they know is that you are standing in the way of the thing that they know that they must have. And therefore, you are a meanie pants. Well, we do all the same kind of stuff. You get woken up for the 400th time that night. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You, you, you got a plumbing leak, you're a bill comes due that you didn't expect and you don't have the money to pay and you start to imagine that God has forgotten you, that God doesn't care about you. Well, God reminds these Israelites, hey, for 40 years when you were maligning me, for 40 years when you were grumbling against me, for 40 years when you were insinuating my lack of care the whole time, (laughs) the only reason you stayed alive and that your feet didn't fall off is because of me. care about you a lot and you want to please God know then in your heart that he treats you like kids that he loves a lot and there is there are no children in this room who are less loved than those who don't get disciplined if you can do whatever you want whenever you want without any consequence child you are not loved tell your parents to discipline you because if you care about somebody if you care about what they become, you're sometimes going to block their path. You're sometimes going to remind these little kids, hey, the universe was not constructed for you, and you are not its son that everything else orbits around. You were made for another. You were made to serve others. And so you will discipline them. The author of Hebrews takes this same sentiment and says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you like sons. And whether you're getting a figurative spanking or a literal one, it never feels good. Getting grounded doesn't feel good. Getting sick doesn't feel good. But when you are in any kind of state of deprivation, if you belong to Jesus, you're to endure this and to know in your heart God's doing this because He likes me? Because He values me? Because He cares about what I become? If I didn't have any trouble in my life, that would mean that God didn't give a rip about me. You see how opposite that is than the way you mostly think? Why is God so nice to everybody else and so mean to me? Why was it raining on the day I was born? Well, the Bible says that's because God must love you an awful lot. He causes you to hunger that He may feed you. And some of us need a lot more of it than others. Some of us got to be weaned off ourselves in a very substantial way so that we can want God back. And so, praise and gratitude, that's a very specific way that you can please God. He's pleased with these things. Uh, honoring and, and obeying specific commandments, like honoring your parents or not stealing. Relations with someone who's not your spouse. These are things that are pleasing to the Lord. When we are not misled by trouble and we know in our heart that this is God loving us, not the opposite, that pleases the Lord. And you know that it even pleases the Lord how we pray. You know, He's urged that He be remembered. That He be considered. Do not forget the Lord. Do not forget the Lord. Do not forget the Lord. When you start to take His command seriously and you believe, as He says to teach you that man does not live on bread alone. Man, humankind. Gender inclusive. 
people do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out from the mouth of the Lord. When you start to believe, when you've been acted upon by God and actually find yourself wanting to please Him, something will happen to you. You'll recognize some deficits in yourself. You'll recognize if I live off the Word of God, that it's got to change the way I think about things. That that God's words have to be the the data and the heart behind how I start to think about relationships and how I think about parenting and how I think about economics and how I think about politics and how I think about business and how I think about UT football if you must think about such a horrendous thing. And when you start to think about that, you know what you will do when you don't forget the Lord and you know you depend on His Word, you depend on His involvement? You'll learn, I can please Him by the way I pray. Solomon, you know Solomon, right? Wise fellow. Well, he wasn't always wise. Once he was young and we became king, here's what we're told. He had this opportunity to, to implore God for what he wanted. And he looked out and he said, Man, Lord, I am just a little kid. And these are your people. Look how numerous they are. Look how wonderful they are. Look how fantastic they are. And I'm just a little kid. I don't know how to do what I'm supposed to do. And so instead of praying for economic vitality and military strength, you know what Solomon prayed for? Executive style hair. No. Solomon said, Lord, give me a heart of wisdom so I can discern what's best so I can govern these people the way you want me to. Basically, let me be a king that kings like you want me to king. Let me represent you in my kingliness in the way I administer justice. Give me a heart, in other words, of wisdom. The godly skill that takes your word so seriously that it affects everything about what I do. And we're told that God was pleased, explicitly. God was pleased with what Solomon prayed. Can I guarantee you something? Those of you who start to take God's Word seriously and you say, you know what? I really do want to please Jesus. And I know (laughs) there's some defects in me about doing that. You start praying things like the Bible prays or you start realizing like, "I I I don't know what to do here. But then you say, Lord, what do you want me to do here? Do you know just asking that question pleases the Lord because you know what you're doing? You're remembering the Lord. You're not forgetting Him. You're saying, I need your involvement. You're believing that He's the one who imparts wisdom, that He's the one who actually commands you to do things, but then gives you the grace to do what He commands. I say it over and over and over again, Augustine's word, Lord, command us what You will, only grant what You command. The psalmist says, Lord, give me an undivided heart that I may fear Your name. You can please God when you start praying to God that you would please Him. When you start realizing where you fail and you say, Lord, I've failed again. I've forgotten You. I've lived arrogantly. I've thought that, I've thought that the wealth of my hands, the strength in my hands and my own cleverness created this wealth for me, this life for me. I'm acting nervously as if it's all mine to maintain even though it was not mine to produce. Forgive me for my pride, for my arrogance, for my God amnesia. Redo me. Refashion me. Make me something different. See, 
When you start to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? You're doing exactly what He's asked here. You're remembering His commands. You're recognizing that He's the one has caused you to hunger that He might feed you. That He's the one who resources you. It's His words that you need. It's His life that you need. Everything about you depends on Him. And He's pleased by your need. He's pleased by your recognition of it. He's pleased when you don't forget Him. We're going to close up here. I've been talking too long. The recognition here is not all that different. What Moses is urging the people to believe, what the Bible really is urging us to believe, is not all that different than what the old dying pastor in the book Gilead by Marilyn Robinson wrote. He says, Calvin writes in some place, not Calvin Ball, John Calvin writes in some place, that we are on a stage and that God is in the audience. And he says, it's really instructive to me to start to imagine that God is watching our lives, all the encounters that come toward us with some kind of aesthetic enjoyment, not just moral judgment. That God might actually enjoy us. And if you start to imagine that right before Jesus spent His wilderness period of 40 days where He was tested like Israel was, except He would not cave, and He answered with the words from Deuteronomy 8, right before He went into the desert, He was affirmed. And God said to him, You are My Son, with whom I am well pleased. Before He had done His ministry, God said, You've got My pleasure. And don't some of you go to school plays and gymnastics and soccer games and basketball games and all kinds of things for your children? And as you go there, do you have a scorecard? Are you saying, darling, that was really a fine performance, but you missed a lot of notes? You really should be embarrassed. I know you're four. In a few weeks, uh, at Christmas time, we'll have a little Christmas pageant and the kids will get up here and it will not be impressive. But you know what? Everybody will be filled with gladness. It won't be impressive because we don't do a lot of performing. They're, they're great. But you know what will happen? Everybody will be filled with gladness and gratitude and their hearts will be moved and they'll be filled with affection and nobody will criticize their kids when they get home because they read the way they read or they didn't sound as good as... Saline Dion or something like that. I, I don't know how you say the name. I know I say it wrong. But you know what? What does happen is that they've got your pleasure before they start because they're your kids. And so when they do what they do in order to please you, well, it's not that hard. If you believe that Jesus has taken your judgment for all the ways that you failed these things, God does tell the Israelites, if you fail, if you ever forget the Lord and worship other gods, I testify again today that you're going to be destroyed. This did happen to Israel, but not entirely. But it happened to our Savior entirely. He, 
who followed God in every way, whose meat and drink it was to do the will of God, who observed all the commands in an Oscar-winning performance, was killed as if he had transgressed for all of us who ought to have been destroyed. And now the Scriptures say we're one with him. And so when God says, you are my son with whom I'm well pleased, he's saying it to you, will you believe that? And if you believe that, then it can orient you to this idea that you're living on a stage in all the little specific ways that you leave this place today to go to do, all the normal stuff of your life is an opportunity and an occasion where your God is watching and He's not watching with a furrowed brow. He's watching like a kid, like a parent watches their kids. He already likes you. I dare you to believe it. 